When I was 15, my father got a job in Houston and my family moved to Texas from New York. I just read The Last Picture Show, that novel by Larry McMurtry, and my image of Texas was of a slightly scary place. It was a world where high school students lived as if they were adults. They had affairs and went skinny dipping and drove pickup trucks to drinking parties. I'd grown up in Westchester County, went to an all-girls school, and I hadn't learned to drive yet, let alone have my first kiss. For weeks, I'd been worried about the move, saying goodbye to friends and trying to imagine my future home. The moving crew that came to pack up our stuff was a Mexican-American family of brothers and sons. They spent the night sleeping inside the truck in front of our house. The night of the move, I got a huge crush on the family's 16-year-old son, Daniel. After our stuff was loaded, we sat with our legs dangling over the side of the truck and talked. I told him, I planned to change my name from Barbara to Bobby Jean once I arrived in Texas. We didn't kiss, but he put his arm around my shoulder as we talked, and I thought, this is the new me. When I think back on that night, I remember it as an emotionally wrenching time. I mean, I was sad to leave all my friends, the house I'd grown up in, and scared to be moving to the land of skinny-dipping parties. But I was excited, too. How often do you get the chance to create a new identity in a place where no one knows you? When I went to bed that night, I cried. But the weird thing is, I wasn't crying for the friends I was leaving behind. I was crying because I would never see Daniel again. This boy who I just met, but who had helped me see into my future. You're listening to Midway, a show about midlife transitions, starting with my own. I'm Barbara Paulson. It's the end of September, and all my friends and family keep asking me how I'm doing. If you've been listening to Midway since the first episode, you know that, like a lot of parents, I've been dreading this transition when my son Miro leaves home for college. And now that time has finally arrived. And so far, I've been surprised by my reaction. I think the anticipation was the hardest part. When Miro was younger, he spent much of his summers away at debate camps or music or science programs. And then I'd take a week off from work for what we called Camp Barbara. And this is day one of Camp Barbara. All right, now we're going to go up and meet the star of our show. <laughs> Let's face it, I'm the real star of the show, but Miro has a very, very key role to play. Hi, Miro Furtado. We listen to music together and visit museums and go biking together. So we're biking. Pull over, pull over. No, this is the best way for me to ride, and it's great. But this summer was different. Miro wanted to stay home the whole summer, mostly to spend time with his girlfriend, Margaret, before they headed off to college. And since my husband Tio and I both work from home, that meant we had more time than usual to hang out as a family. We went for hikes in Rock Creek Park. And ate meals outside in the backyard. We went on a European vacation and got front row seats to one of our favorite musicals. For the first time in our life as a family, we were all in the house together every day. 
My friend Janet and I talked about how much we were trying to savor our boys' last months and weeks and days at home. It's like the lost summer. Her son Ruben has been Miro's best friend since sixth grade. It's, it's time is passing and, you know, let's face it, they will really be free of us as of the latter part of August. But there's only so much savoring you can do before it starts to get ridiculous. I found myself taking lots of pictures and silently noting every pivotal last event. So it was almost a relief when, after back-to-school shopping trips and a morning spent at the DMV to get Miro's driver's license, this summer is, uh, finally came to an end. This is Miro's last night at home. He's actually not at home, he's out seeing friends. And it was the day before Miro was leaving. I'm about to go for a walk to um, Nelson Letters. It was like I thought I could slow down time by documenting everything. And being present to every moment. Interesting how the cicadas sounds come and go. Okay, so I'm capturing these sounds, but I also want to capture, I don't know, how I'm feeling. To be honest, I don't know how I'm feeling. <clears throat> I've been spending the last two years waiting for this moment to arrive. I've wanted to, you know, like prepare for it and know what I'm heading for in the future. And, you know, in a lot of ways I've done that. I've done that. Trying to talk myself into feeling okay with what was happening. Like I don't have any major regrets. It's not like I'm not prepared, I am. It's just that now it's happening. And I'm, I'm pretty okay with it. Like I'm so happy for him. He's so done with our life as a family, as he should be. Yeah, this phase is over. Of course I feel you know, regret that I'll no longer be a mother in the way I was, but that's that's been over for a long time. And this is almost just like, you know, ripping the bandage off. And then when the skin is smooth and clear again, it'll be like, this is the way we always were. We were always just equals in the world. Right, well, I'm gonna head in. But ripping the bandage off, it's not quite the right metaphor for the slow motion goodbye we were having. We dropped him at Union Station for the train to Boston because he'd signed up for a week of community service before orientation started. So we'd actually be seeing him only a week later. That first night home without him, we had a huge storm. So, of course, I recorded it. Whenever it would rain like this, even if we were in our own little worlds, he'd be in his room, I'd be in my study, you know, on our computers, and like we'd go, whoa, we'd come out here and enjoy this together. And now, you know, by myself. This is, this storm is for you, Mira. It was quiet in the house all that week. I cleaned out his room, cleared out bagfuls of old homework stacked up in his closet. I lay in his bed. I did not sniff his pillow. I did not cry. 
and then it was time to drive up to Cambridge and meet him on campus. We're here. I am sitting in Harvard Yard, actually right across from the dorm where we are going to be living. And we are here waiting for him. Move-in day is one of the few times the school opens the huge wrought iron doors of the famous Johnson Gate, so parents can drive into Harvard Yard, which is normally close to cars. Oh, so they are going to open the gates. To drive in, yes. As this Cambridge police um, officer explained it? to me. If you go, if you cut through the yard, right, like mm -hmm. that way, you come to Quincy's. Harvard Yard. Yeah, Harvard Yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you I'm just come teasing up. you because you got the accent that we're always hearing about. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> everyone always bad. says park the car, have yeah. a yard. But you can't park the car, have a yard. Yeah. You, Although today I'm going to. <laughs> there you go, huh? So, you know, when you go through the yard, you come out on And after we unloaded the car, moving happened pretty quick. We hauled suitcases up four flights of stairs, along with a window fan and a desk lamp, and some drawings of DC cityscapes that Miro had brought. We made up his bed with the extra-long twin sheets that dorm beds require and installed these plastic risers that allow you to lift up the bed by six inches so you can store more stuff on you. So, oh, that's nice, Mira. I really like the way this that looks. Cool area, I like right? that color of light. Yeah, me too. Me Is too. it angle? I keep using the phrase mixed emotions to describe how I felt that day, but that doesn't really explain the split personality that was inhabiting my body. There I was, holding hands with Tio as we skipped across Harvard Yard on a brilliant sunny day with hundreds of other families. Feels good. What a beautiful day. For this Yet everything brought a lump to my throat. From watching Tio fluff up the pillows on Miro's bed to the welcome speech from the college dean. coaster of emotions that you might be feeling as your children cross this really important threshold into adulthood. I looked around the auditorium at the expectant faces of all these parents nodding their heads and smiling in recognition of what we were all feeling. One of the most sacred moments in human life is the moment when a young person comes into their own. It's the moment that a student becomes an adult. And then, as the schedule made clear, at 6.30 that evening, it was time for parents to say goodbye. It's weird to think how momentous this goodbye is for both Tio and me. And part of it is I think we're both afraid that this thing we've shared, parenting Miro, it's coming to an end, and we don't really know what it'll be like to just be a couple again. So much of what we talk about has revolved around Miro. And it's doubly strange because we came so close to never having Miro in our lives. When we first fell in love in our 20s, neither of us wanted kids. Here's to you and I remembering how we felt at that time. I think pretty early on, you said, you know, I don't ever want to have children. And... I had never wanted to have children either. When I would babysit for kids, I was like, oh, I don't want to have kids. And I think we knew that you were more strongly in that camp, but... I didn't feel at all ambivalent. I just did not want to have children. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, it was like I could give casual consideration to other people wanting to have children. Oh, that's big of you. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and you weren't going to hold it against them. And like you would still be friends right. with them even if they had kids. Yeah. <laughs> somewhat, somewhat. It's, it's, it's hard for a single person to, have, uh, uh, to be friendly with uh, uh, someone who's got kids. It is. <laughs> I know, we always right. hated, we really hated hanging out with people who had young children. Right, it's, it's all about the kids. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so consumed by them. All of a sudden you would see their IQ go down by 20 or 30 points. So it's just... <laughs> I know. Even now, T 
Theo is kind of scarily convincing in how strongly he felt about this. I didn't want to play the role of father. I, I didn't like the idea of family life. I wanted to live my life as something of an artist. In Theo's case, his not wanting kids had a lot to do with his own childhood. The sort of life that I had as a child is not the life that I would want any child to have. And I was uh, pretty sure that the only way to have a life that was different was through careful attention to child rearing. And that I would never be able to give a child that sort of attention. And me, I'd had a happy childhood, but I felt the same way about wanting an unencumbered life. Right up until I didn't. I'm trying to think of when that started to change for me. I was in my 30s. Because it, it really didn't change in the sense that all of a sudden, like, a bunch of my friends started having kids and I was like, oh, look at them having babies. I want that too. I, I didn't have that. If anything, I, I, I thought it looked terrifying. But one day, while we were on vacation in the Azores, the Portuguese islands where Tio was born, it all came to a head. You were always so good with kids that you would like, play with them in this very joyful and rough way and I would just go, oh my god, like he seems to really like kids. We were visiting a friend of ours named Kathy who was married and had three young children. And you were playing around with her kids and she asked you, are you and Barbara ever going to have any children? And, and you were like, no, I have no desire to have children. And of course, I knew that, but there was something about hearing you say it so definitively to her in the context of watching you enjoying these children so much that made me realize that maybe I had held out some hope that you would change your mind. And it really shocked me. And I remember being at the hotel that night and taking a bath. And I don't know if you remember this. Um, was this Hotel San Pedro? Yes. And I was in the bathtub and I started thinking about it and I was crying and then I got out of the bath and I came into bed and I guess I told you then, I, you know, I think I might want to have children sometime. <laughs> and I just remember it so vividly because you just took me in your arms and you just wanted to comfort me, but you couldn't say those words. You couldn't say the words that would make, make me feel better. And it really just hit me, like, wow, we're never having children. I do remember your wanting and needing consolation, and that consolation would come uh, in the form of feeling that I had opened myself to the possibility of having children, that I couldn't do that. It would be akin to asking me to cut off an arm. There's no suspense here. You know how the story turns out. And the change happened, as in most matters of the heart, in stages. And I think it was on the way home from that trip, you said, I would be willing to talk about the possibility of having children. And that was enough for me to just be completely elated on that plane ride. I didn't press you on it. I was just like, really? And I went to the bathroom and at that moment, the pilot announced that we were flying over the Azores and we were specifically over the island of Graciosa. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and just being like so happy and just saying, if we have a child and it's a girl, we'll name her Graciosa. 
We got back to San Francisco and our jobs and our busy lives, and we didn't talk about it again. And then, a few months later, Tio's father had a stroke. And that was a turning point. Tio flew back to the Azores to help take care of his father, and he also spent more time with our friend Kathy and her kids again. Kathy's kids really liked me, and I really uh, cared for them. I felt like uh, there was an immediate connection with uh, uh, Sean. That's Kathy's youngest child. I kind of toss her in the air, and then she would scream out in pleasure. I just uh, uh, felt that for the first time I could imagine having a, a child with whom I would have that sort of relationship. She'd stolen his heart. And then you came home, and we were so happy to see each other, and we went out to dinner, and you said, if you want to start trying to have a baby, we can, we can try. It was like Tio had come back from the Azores a different person. I remember looking across the table into his dark eyes, not believing how far he'd traveled to get to this place. And I was pregnant three months later. A little more than a year after Tio's father's stroke, our son was born. He'd never get to meet his paternal grandfather, who died a few months before. But we named him, of course not Graciosa, but Miro, short for Tio de Miro, the name Tio and his father shared. Then, of course, when we had him... Oh, know. everything changed. You were so in love with him. I kind of knew that you weren't going to throw it back at me. Like, why did you want to have him? Because you were all in then. Uh, you're right. After Mira was born, I had uh, no reservations whatsoever. I was all, I love that expression, all in. I absolutely was. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to get Daddy. you guys. Hi, where's Daddy? Well, Daddy's it? And Tio really does like playing with kids. We've been saying goodbye to Miro ever since. When he was two months old, I cut short my maternity leave by a month because things were falling apart back at the magazine I worked for. And I wasn't ready for how wrenching it would be to leave him every day. But it got easier. And in leaving him to go back to work, I reconnected with a part of myself I didn't want to lose. And then Miro got old enough to start leaving us, heading off for those weeks of summer camps. He's always been independent and eager for new experiences. But a few times, when we said goodbye, he looked so young and uncertain as we drove away in the car. It's gonna be great, we'd mouth through frozen smiles. And it always was. We'd pick him up, eager for a joyful reunion, only to see how sad he was now to leave. On move-in day at Harvard, we went to the bookstore, and I picked out a poster for him to decorate his room. It was a black-and-white photograph of Einstein riding a bicycle. Miro loves physics and cycling, so I thought it was perfect for him, but he was skeptical when I gave it to him, and my emotions running high, I let my feelings get hurt, which was ridiculous. I knew he was right. It wasn't what he would have picked out. It was, I realized, what I wanted him to like. Even on move-in day, I was still learning. It was time to let my grown-up son make his own choices.
We hugged goodbye in the yard outside his dorm, and as we walked away, I looked back to see him mingling with his fellow dorm mates, his easy smile lighting up his square-jawed face. All day long, I'd seen him turning towards his new life, with his whole heart and body, leaning toward the light like a sunflower, rushing towards all those new people, the adventures ahead of him, his future. I took Tio's hand, and we walked off campus together. The day after we get home, the fridge is empty, so I head to the Whole Foods at Tenley Town. I steer my cart through the aisles, and I don't buy pita pockets or pasta. I don't buy orange juice or cookies or bagels. I allow myself a good cry on the ride home. Before Mira left, I asked him for advice about how I should move forward. Do you have any advice for me? I mean, let's face it, it's all about me. You know, you, uh, you just have to somewhat let go. No more interviews. Um, that could be my main suggestion. For the last 18 years, I've shaped my life around Miro. The person I am right now was molded around the contours of his desires and needs. Being a parent is a central part of my identity. Tio's too. Well, so how are you feeling? Two weeks in. I mean, he's been gone for two weeks now. It's interesting. I have th these moments of uh, recognition that, oh, this life is forever changed, that he's gone off to uh, at the college and will never be part of our lives in the way that, that he has been. And so, so these uh, moments of awareness and the sense of loss. And now comes the part where we get to remember who we are apart from that parental role. We get to remember what it was like before we changed our minds about having a child. I started work on this podcast about a year ago as a way to help me figure out what's next. And now that time has come, and guess what? I'm doing okay. It's still too new to know what this next chapter is really going to be like, but I know how it begins with me trying to be excited about it. It's like in many ways, this should be this like exciting time where we can devote ourselves fully to each other. And I am excited. Oh my gosh. Late last summer, I learned I'd been accepted into a workshop that I hope will catapult me <laughs> into that unknown so future. Dear Barbara, we're excited to let you know you've been accepted to the fall 2016 Transom Story that Workshop. That seems positive so far. Yeah. That means that as I speak to you now, I've already relocated from DC to Cape Cod to make radio stories for two months. I'm living in a rambling wooden house overlooking the water, sharing stories and meals with eight people decades younger than I am. I'm missing Tio very much, and he'll be visiting it in October, thank God. But for the first time in a very long time, I'm on my own again. And I'm out of context. Here I am no one's wife or mother or even the sum of my resume. I'm just someone else trying to learn radio. And I admit it, I deliberately plan to plunge myself into something new and challenging to distract me from my empty nest. But you know what? It's working. This is the new me. Being stripped of old roles loosens my sense of identity. And at times, I feel unmoored. So far, I haven't cried myself to sleep once, though no promises there. But if I do, it won't be because I'm missing Miro. It'll be because I'm trying to reinvent myself and that's scary. But right now, it feels pretty exhilarating. 
This episode was produced by me, Barbara Paulson, and it finishes up the first season of Midway because I won't be releasing episodes this fall. But as soon as this workshop is over, I plan to start making stories for the second season, and I'd love to hear from you with any ideas or topics you'd like me to cover. Because remember, the first line of Dante's Inferno reads, Midway, in the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straightforward path had been lost. In referring to the journey of our life, Dante was saying that, sure, you may find yourself lost in a dark forest, but there are a whole lot of us on this journey. So please email me at midwaypodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Midway for free on iTunes. I'll be talking to you in the next season. Thanks for listening. For sure. And I can hear my own voice. I can hear how it sounds. I can go very low. That is my low voice. This is my high voice. Wow. Do you find this interesting? Yep. Uh, what are your thoughts? This is my low voice. My low voice my is low lower voice. than your voice. Yes, it is. Whose voice is lower? Mine is. No, it's yes. not. <laughs> it's almost Oh, my, lower. whose voice is higher? Mine is. Mine is. Mine is. I think Tio has the highest voice. Yeah? Yeah, you should see. <laughs>